Welcome to AFT in Action, a podcast for members of AFT Connecticut-affiliated local unions. We're approximately 30,000 working people in the public and private sectors, teachers and school support staff, nurses and healthcare workers, higher education faculty and public employees in nearly 90 unions across the state. The series provides a deeper dive into issues impacting our members and our movement as part of AFT Connecticut's engagement and communications efforts. Welcome sisters and brothers to another episode of AFT in Action. My name is Jan Hockadell, your State Federation President, and once again, co-hosting this latest episode. Today, we're gonna to be talking about preserving students' public higher education and how community colleges are being impacted here in Connecticut. And I'm so pleased to have Dennis Bogusky, AFT Connecticut's Divisional Vice President for Higher Education and the International Student Advisor from Nora Community College to co-host this session with me. Dennis, I'm not saying you're old, but you graduated from a community college and have worked there for 41 years. Brother, tell yeah. us a little bit about that. And the community college was my um, second chance, and it was a good second chance. I, uh, I was there for two years and, and a little over two years and did graduate, and it motivated me to move on and to go get the bachelor's degree and then the master's and um, did a few things and then came back and worked in higher ed. And so, Dennis, in the past couple of years, there's been a lot of talk about the plans to consolidate the community colleges in an effort to reduce the cost. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? It was presented as um, a way to stop dwindling existing reserves. It was not the program that's out there today. It was uh, presented as, look, we're spending our reserves you know, too quickly and we're going to run out of reserves. So we want to, in a sense, right-size the institutions, looking at back office functions and things like that. There was some resistance to that because of some of the things that came out. And then all of a sudden, our institutions needed a whole major overhaul, according to this plan and according to the management group. This does not have an ounce of faculty buy-in or staff buy-in. Um, and I said, had resistance all the way along. I, I, I always end with saying, you know, Students First has a nice ring to it, but this isn't Students First. Thank you, Dennis, for all you do and for agreeing to co-host this with me today. And to join us in our conversation, we have State Representative Josh Elliott, who represents the 88th District in Hamden, and he is the co-chair of Connecticut's Higher Education Committee, and I have to say, a strong supporter of organized labor. And we are so fortunate to have him here with us to talk about these discussions that are happening in the legislature, the consolidation and funding for higher education. So welcome, Josh. Thanks for having me. Before we get to our members' questions, um, Representative Elliott, could you share with us what made you decide to run for state representative? In 2009, I moved down to Virginia to work on a campaign down there. And it was a campaign that was conducted after Obama had gotten elected. So we got absolutely crushed by that post-Obama backlash. And even though I learned a lot, I decided that politics probably wasn't for me, at the very least campaign side politics. So I moved back to Connecticut and I went to law school, worked the family business and took a number of years off. And it wasn't until the Sanders presidency, uh, or I should say, uh, Sanders ran for president, uh, that I, I helped on that campaign for a full year. And then when that campaign was over, Working Families Party approached me, asked me if I would primary the speaker from the left. I eventually said yes, the speaker dropped out. It was me up against the next in line. And uh, I got lucky, I worked hard, 
but uh, I got lucky, right time at the right place. And I got elected at the end of 16, so served in 17 and been here ever since. I never planned necessarily on being elected anytime soon. Uh, I am 36 now, so I got elected at 31. So I figured that my 30s would be more devoted toward, uh, we own a couple natural food stores. So really towards growing my business acumen and then coming back to politics at some point. Um, so it, it sort of got thrusted on me, but it was fine. I, I met a lot of folk from labor, a lot of uh, third party activists in, in my year of working on the, on the, on the Bernie campaign. And uh, it made me realize that, uh, you know, some of my people were in Connecticut too. So it was great. We've recognized that this is your first year um, as a co-chair of higher, higher, um, of higher ed. And it's hardly been a, a regular year. We take last year when we were, everybody was closed down. You folks trying to navigate now through this the tail ends of the pandemic. So can you just share some of your experiences of this past year with the higher ed committee? I did not ask for higher ed specifically. I uh, told leadership, listen, I am ready. <laughs> I came in with my elbows out. I repaired all those relationships over the past few years. Uh, I still have my moral compass firmly in place and I just, I'm working better with my colleagues. Give me a chance to run a committee and uh, Speaker Ritter said, okay. So he, he gave uh, me a, a slate of a few options and uh, higher ed was, was clearly the one uh, that made the most sense for me to, to choose. And he said, I'll, I'll give you a couple of days to think about it. And I said, nope, I don't, I don't need to think about it. I'm good. Give me, give me higher ed. That's great. Let's do it. Why did it make sense to you? My policy agenda is heavily geared towards criminal justice reform and voting access, and um, and also good good accounting, good transparency, uh, good government in terms of ensuring that the wealthy pay their fair share and that we have good and clean elections. Th those those are my my big priorities. But aside from that, I know a lot about my generation and the overwhelming debt that people come out with and seeing, seeing people's salaries decline over time or at least not gain as much as the ultra wealthy uh, have. And I also know that the cost of education has been going up every single year for decades. So we are on this, this slow train ride to, to um, the system falling apart. Um, we, we saw it in 2008, 2009 with housing. Uh, I assume at some point we'll see it with, with credit card debt, but we're absolutely gonna see it with, uh, with debt for, for colleges. So um, I, I was well aware of this problem for, for the last decade or so, because at a certain point, the way that I phrase it is, you know, if you come out with $50,000, $100,000 of debt, okay, maybe that's possible to pay off over a couple of decades. But if you come out with 200,000, 300,000, half a million dollars worth of debt, at what point do we uh, differentiate between indentured servitude and the system that we've, we've set up? Uh, if you're in debt over the course of your entire life because there's simply no way to pay that money off, um, well, these are a result of choices that we've made, uh, both at the Capitol and, and at the Capitol in, in DC. And so um, broadly speaking, I, I know the kinds of problems that we need to be working on in the Higher Education Committee. That's fantastic. As an educator, I thank you. And as a mother um, of a child 
who has her doctorate, but is going to be paying huge amounts of money until she's 55 years old. I also appreciate your viewpoint. So thank you twice. <laughs> so let's talk about some of the key legislation that is impacting the state's community colleges right now. So what are some of the proposed bills that at this point in the session um, you see as a priority and most likely to advance? Generally speaking, during a regular session, higher ed would get out anywhere from 20 to 30 bills. We were asked by leadership this year to limit that a bit. Reason being that our nonpartisan and partisan staff all were dealing with a completely new slate of technological uh, difficulties, but also things that were clearly going to bring us uh, to the present technologically, which we should have done probably a decade ago anyway. Uh, but because of this learning curve, the ask was that we, we don't put too much of a burden onto their work plate. Uh, that said, we ended up uh, getting out about 42 bills from our committee. So there, there's a lot for us to work on. Some things died in other committees that they were referred to, but there's a lot for us to play around with and a lot for us to take and put into some omnibus bills. Actually, I do have a specific and that's 6403. Great. And that's a very important bill to us um, that came out of grassroots um, in the, the feelings that the legislature should have oversight over mergers, closers and activities such as being proposed. Um, so where is 6403 at the moment and where do you think it's going? 6403 is very much in limbo at the moment. Reason being the governor's office does not want to touch it with a 10 foot pole. So there's a couple different aspects to this bill. There is the mergers aspect and there's the closure aspect. And different people have different feelings on this. Um, people, uh, when I say people, I, I mean the political class, but even more specifically my colleagues and, and other legislators feel that closures is probably fine for us to take back as uh, something that, the, that we have oversight of. But there's a lot of concern in terms of the political process of having the legislature have oversight of, of mergers. I will say that about a decade ago, the legislator, legislature is very specifically handed over the power of mergers and closures to the Board of Regents. And in doing so, we became an outlier among all other states. Uh, the vast majority of states maintain that power, meaning that when a board of regents decides to close or, or merge or consolidate a system, uh, the legislature has to um, basically come and, and, and give it a vote. They have to approve it. Ultimately, the problem that I've seen is that this is an issue of transparency. It's an issue of trust. It's an issue of bringing professors into the conversation. And the way this was set up was not geared to really allow for much of that, if, if any of that. Because really, we should be bringing the Board of Regents and NECHI, who's the accrediting body, and professors in front of the Higher Education Committee every couple months, few months, and, and talk about the progress. And we did this a couple months ago, but the last time previous was years ago. And so the Board of Regents hasn't been doing a good job of listening to the professors who are elected by their peers to represent them. Uh, there's been a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of bloat, which seems, you know, you're seeing a lot of middle managers making hundreds of thousands of dollars overseeing a system that doesn't yet exist. 
there's no clarity in terms of how long this process is going to take. It's always one year around the corner. It's always one year around the corner. Uh, we can't get clarity from Nechi because it's all private negotiations uh, and, and uh, all the negotiations between Board of Regents and, and Nechi uh, are, are sealed off even from FOIA. So there's no way for us to know. So Nechi won't tell us and we only know what, what the Board of Regents will tell us. And for all those reasons, th this has uh, been a, a very uh, poor process. I, I think that if you were to ask anybody, do you think that there should be um, a, an easier system for students to move credits around? I think the answer is yes. And I think that there's also a possibility to have, let's say, IT or, or something with that effect that could be consolidated, that doesn't need to be in every single location. But I also think that there's a, a lot of additional jobs that were added to consolidate some of these other functions. And I think this idea initially was to say, all right, this is gonna be cheaper, it's gonna be better, it's gonna be better for the students. And I think that that hasn't actually happened and it's unclear that's going to happen. And I think the Board of Regents had to change their tack and, and change what they were saying, which is saying, oh, this is all, all student focused. And that was maybe not necessarily what it was supposed to be in the beginning. I think it was supposed to save money in the beginning and I think that now they're saying that it might not save money. I would love to talk about the efforts uh, you see to fair to pass a fair budget, um, you know, which of course is critical for the future of public higher education in Connecticut and the jobs of our members who deliver it. And you know, from where we stand, as of course we record this discussion, what are your hopes and expectations for a settlement between legislative leaders and the governor on a package that might include new long-term revenue options? One problem is that if somebody runs for office and they haven't really held substantive office before, you don't really know where they're gonna be on policy. And so we're seeing that this governor is pretty conservative when it comes to fiscal policy. Yes, there was the debt diet as soon as he came in, but there's also the fact that during this pandemic, wealthy people have become significantly more wealthy than they, than they were before. And the working class and, and, and the, the working poor uh, have um, not done as well, to put it charitably. And there's still this resistance to ask the ultra wealthy to pay it forward. So the bills that we got out of the legislature, out of appropriations and finance are good bills. They don't raise as much revenue as I think we should. There is 2% in a capital gains increase, which I think is really important. I think we need to do a little bit more in terms of capital gains. I think we need to, to tax our uh, our richer earners uh, through the income tax as well. Um, I base a lot of what I believe in terms of equity uh, through our tax code on the 2014 tax incidence study that Connecticut uh, put out and that's very easily Googleable. And, and you can see that the more money you make in Connecticut, the less you're paying as a percentage of your income in state and local taxes. So if asked, what is equity in our tax code? I can say, well, that's not equity. Let's look to at least have people pay. And when I say a flat tax, I don't mean a flat tax across the board, but it should be more fair than this. I think, the, I think we should have that, that whole tax incident study should be flipped. I think the more money you make, you should be paying a higher percentage of your income say in local taxes uh, because you have all of your basic needs met and, and that money just is so much better when it's paid forward which we did for decades and decades and then stopped doing and now here we are. So 
what's the position that we're in? Basically, leadership needs to negotiate with the governor's office, knowing where the caucus is at. There are many of us in the in the House uh, Democratic Party that believe that we should be asking the wealthy to pay their fair share, and uh, we should be fully funding as, as many services as we had before. And you know, we have a way to to pay for uh, debt free um, college uh, in the budget, and and that's that's really huge. We had a final question on state employee contracts. It seems like none of the talks have really moved in a productive um, in a productive direction, especially in higher ed. So I guess I just wanted to ask where you folks are at on getting these contracts done and and and, and what you're feeling about a board and things coming in and saying, okay, let's take away academic freedom. Let's you know do all of these stupid draconian things. We have this this weird role as a legislature of being very limited in terms of what we can and can't do. That said, we're not shackled in terms of what we can and can't say. So I have been very vocal that the asks of the Board of Regents uh, has been onerous. And um, my understanding was that as they were uh, pissing more and more professors off that, that they would be backing away from some of their demands. I, I don't understand why we are continuously asking uh, the professors and, and those who ensure the, the long-term economic um, safety of our state to be um, giving more and more back and also you know, there's certain certain things about the job that I think that really draw people to it, and, and that is that academic freedom and feeling ownership of, of their ideas. Um, and a lot of that was stripped away. So, you know, I, I'm grateful for the work that you're doing. And I, I know that that you're you're pushing hard uh, against a lot of these provisions. And, and I know that talking to my colleagues that many of us are in the same boat. And we're frustrated by the fact that we can't do too much in terms of pushing this conversation forward, but at the very least, we can we can amplify voices. We are so appreciative of your knowledge, your views, <laughs> and the experience in the legislature, and that all you do for the working people in Connecticut, Josh. Yeah, you got it. And Dennis, thank you for co-hosting this episode with me and engaging in the discussion about higher ed with Representative Elliott. It was my pleasure to do this, and thank you for inviting me to be a co-host today. And as we do at the end of each podcast, I want to thank our members for all that they do and for listening. And I invite members to submit suggestions and questions for our next episode of AFT in Action. We've been thinking about an episode in June that would look back at the 2021 legislative session, you know, what positively impacted our members and what didn't, but I would really love to hear your thoughts. So send any comments by email to actnetreply at aftct.org. That's A-T-C-N-E-T. R-E-P-L-Y at sign A-F-T-C-T dot O-R-G. Plus, you can leave a voice message by dialing 860-257-9782 and asking for extension 116. That's 860-257-9782, extension 116. I'm really looking forward to including your voices. Thank you in advance for being heard. That's a wrap for this latest edition of AFT in Action. Additional episodes are available at our Podbean page and social media channels, all of which can be found at aftct.org. Like what you heard? Then share with fellow members and encourage they give it a listen too, and help build the power of the UNI in union.